A reading from Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? declares the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who says disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the tender of grapes him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. So we mentioned in the children's sermon, we're in the season of Advent. And Advent is an incredibly important concept to understand the work of God. It's the notion that God is a God who enters into this world. He's come before and He's coming again. And we as His people exist between His comings in a certain sense. Looking back and appreciating His first coming in the incarnation and looking forward to His second coming. And asking ourselves in the midst of this waiting, are we waiting well? Are we waiting in a way that actually looks forward expectantly and informs the present and the here and now? 
and the expectation that Christ is coming again. I find it ironic because when we actually enter the season of Advent in terms of celebrating an American Christmas, it's quite different. And when we think about Advent, the Advent of the living God as it's presented to us in Scripture, and we tend to think of very happy things and joyful things and cute things and cuddly things and presents and sweaters and colors and wreaths and on and on and on. Sometimes to, uh, to appreciate the season, we consider some of the great prayers of the American Christian tradition in our house. And which always brings us, of course, to the prayer of uh, Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, (laughs) in which he prays, Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diaper, with your tiny little fat balled up fists, dear eight pound, six ounce newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant and so cuddly, but still omnipotent. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million, woo! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious and it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Thank you for all your power and your grace. Dear baby God, amen. Surely a comical note, right? But also an uncomfortable note. I'd say that's the prayer of the average American Christian. Jesus, we're so grateful for your grace. You're so cute. You're omnipotent. And we love you best when you give us everything we want. Thanks for when you're, when you're doing us right. Thank you. We appreciate you. And we don't really have much else to talk about. Now, that's our cultural conception of the advent of the living God as he enters into this world. What do we do with Amos. Compare how Amos is talking about the advent of God coming to Israel. If you look at verse 1, strike the capitals. Now the capitals were uh, architectural structures that upheld the false temple in Bethel. They're, They're essentially pillars. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Well, Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) Who gets up on Christmas morning and says, let's think about Advent and celebrate the Incarnation. Let's read from Amos 9. At the same time, we see, oh, there's a different kind of reality when we talk about the Advent of the living God. When God shows up and enters into this world, it can't be all grace and cuddliness and kindness because the very reason he's entering into this world is sin and brokenness. And to do business with that. And so we have to understand that the advent of God's grace must also mean the advent of God's judgment. And this is what we're after this morning, understanding the ways in which Israel has mistaken their expectation of God and looking forward to his advent. And what I want you to see is three huge mistakes that Israel makes that we have the same tendency to make. It's going to be two, two mistaken responses to God and one mistaken presumption regarding God. So what are these mistaken responses? Look at with me at verse 2a. Just at the beginning there where Amos says, If they dig into Sheol, Sheol is the abode of the dead. From there shall my hand take them. Now verse 2 begins a section in Amos in which Amos is basically calling Israel out saying, You think that you can go to a place apart from 
the rule or the presence of God, and as a result of being away from that rule and presence, you'll be safe, and you can do whatever you want. And Amos says, that's a ridiculous expectation. Right? You think if you dig into Sheol, well, God doesn't hang out in the abode of the dead. You can live any old way you want when you're down in the abode of, of Sheol, but this isn't the case at all. There is no place outside God's purview is what Amos is saying. Now, you have to think about this a little bit and remember that we're dealing with kind of ancient metaphor in an ancient text. Right? Israel doesn't literally think. Right? Israel, you can't think that Israel is, is hearing Amos's words and saying, oh, God's coming in judgment. Let's dig down to Sheol and build a town in Sheol and we'll be safe. It's not a literal comment. Amos is, is pointing out the idea that Israel thinks that they can simply kind of move away from God and create a space apart from God in which they can do what they want. And it won't be a big deal because God isn't everywhere and he doesn't really care. As long as they're not doing anything too bad, he's not going to be that present. We had dinner with friends this week and they were telling us about a, a show that they had seen on Broadway. It was the show this year on Broadway that took the Tony Awards by storm. And I was fascinated by the story. The show is, is Dear Evan Hansen. And the story of Dear Evan Hansen is about a high school senior named Evan who suffers from fairly severe social anxiety. He's not close to his mother. He has no father. His mother is working full-time and pursuing a certification as a paralegal. And he has no friend that he would say is close to him. No real connection. And so he's trying to navigate life. He has huge anxiety about what comes after high school. He's trying to see his way forward. And his mom's got him seeing a therapist. And the therapist has him writing some letters, trying to explore some of his anxiety and some of his feelings. And unfortunately, one of the letters that Evan writes falls into the hands of an acquaintance. It's not a good friend. It's someone he knows and someone who isn't that friendly toward him. So Evan goes through several days scared to death of what this other boy, Connor, might do with his letter. A few days later, Evan is called into the principal's office, and he's pretty nervous. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And there he finds, waiting for him, Connor's parents and the principal. And what's happened is that Connor has committed suicide. And they found Evan's letter in his pocket, but they have assumed that it was a letter that Connor wrote to Evan. And Connor's parents are distraught. They, they, they struggled to raise him. They didn't know how, how really the right decisions to make. Connor was a very troubled youth. And so in this moment of desperation, they, they look at Evan and they say to Evan, were you his friend? Did he confide in you to some extent? Well, Evan panics, right? Talk about a, a, a socially anxiety-producing situation. And he thinks these parents are distraught and I don't know what to do. I might as well give them what they want. And Evan proceeds to tell them that yes, he and Connor were close and that Connor had actually gone out of his way to help him on a number of occasions. And even more so, they shared a secret email account in which they had exchanged correspondence over years. Of course, you can imagine where this goes from here. Evan now has to create right, all of this reality to facilitate a lie that will roll into a lie that will roll into a lie and grow and snowball in effect. And ultimately the point where Evan realizes he's so overwhelmed by the, uh, by the fakeness 
by the lack of truth and by all the consequences that he finally, uh, in the climax of the play, comes clean and deals with the repercussions of the lies that he has allowed to go forth. And I couldn't help even hearing the story of the thing. Evan Hughes is a picture of all of us. A picture of us as we go into the world and we, we, we create an artificial reality to some extent that makes us feel better about ourselves and presents us as if we're better than we really are to other people. It's an artificial reality in which we, in one sense, dig down to Sheol. Because we say, if I can create an artificial reality in which I'm much better than I am and appear much better than I actually should to others, then I don't really need the presence of God. Right? If I'm not bad, I don't need rescued, and so I can kind of live with a safe distance apart from him. Now, it would not surprise me at all if some of you this morning are living under some terrible lies that you have layered on top of each other and you feel the weight of them bearing down on you. And for many others, it's simply, you know, your spouse gets home and says, what'd you do today? And you suddenly find yourself throwing in a couple extra activities that are a bit of a stretch. Makes your day seem a little bit more productive than it actually was. Right? Or right? say that you, you actually got more done or I was more invested in something. Right? Just a little bit of spin. Not necessarily lie, but just enough exaggeration to present you in a little bit different light. Why do you feel the necessity to create this artificial reality? Is it something that will actually rescue you? Is it something that will actually redeem you in the midst of that illusion? You know, it's been fascinating in the news the last couple of months, uh, if you've been following it, several major executives of social media companies have come forward and basically repented to the American public for what they've created. Sean Parker's one, a president at Facebook, says, I deeply regret what we have created at Facebook. It was something that we had hopes for, and now we realize that it's something that cre simply creates an artificial reality that doesn't allow or permit or facilitate good human contact, and it simply encourages people to devour one another. Essentially says, I'm sorry. Another executive at Twitter said the same thing. Said, I'm sorry for what we've created. It's not something that's actually helping the American dialogue. It's something that's hurting it as we reduce real dialogue to 144 characters. Because you have created no reference to any kind of, of theology or to God or to an artificial reality created by sin, but a recognition of how prone we are to create artificial realities in which we'd rather exist. Because those artificial realities give us the illusion that we can create distance from God. And this is what Amos is calling Israel out on. You think you can dig down to Sheol. You think you can dwell in a place where you have a comfortable distance from God. There is no such place. Now, that's the first faulty presumption. The other is much like it, but slightly different, and it's in 2b. Amos began in 2a by saying, you may think there's a place that you can go to to escape from God's presence, but the other error that you can make is to think that you can climb up to where God exists, right? And 2b says, if they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And we've seen this throughout the book of Amos, is that Israel is relying on her perceived strength. We've built up a, a massive uh, national state that is powerful. Our military strength is unrivaled. Economically, we're very successful. 
We've created our own temples and our own worship system that gives some loose reference to Yahweh. Why do we really need God? We've essentially climbed up to heaven and we've dispensed to ourselves what we, sh- we think should be dispensed from heaven to us. And if we can do that, then why do we really need to take God that seriously? Notice the brashness of their, sen- of their strength, of their pride in verse 10. Uh, in the second part of verse 10, what does Israel say to herself? Disaster shall not overtake us. Here's Amos standing on the threshold of Israel saying, disaster stands at your door. God is coming in judgment. The temple is going to be crashed down upon your heads. And whoever happens to escape that, God will chase down with the sword. And what does Israel say? We're not worried. Disaster's not going to overtake us. We're too strong. We're too sophisticated. And so whether it's, it's the people so long ago building the Tower of Babel and reaching up to the heavens, where it's whether it's our modern-day technology and the, the belief in that the Titanic will get us across the Atlantic unscathed. What places do you place your strength and say, really, I'm unshakable. I make so much money, or I do so well at work, or my family is so competent, or I'm such a good spouse, or such a good friend. I'm not really that shakable. My strength is secure. Well, realize that there's an echo of what Amos is pointing out to Israel in that and essentially saying, I can deliver to myself what I think heaven should be delivering to me. And if I can deliver to myself that security and that safety, then what do I need heaven for? What does God say? He says, I will bring you down. The grace of God is exhibited in his very judgment. Remember, where are we headed this morning? What are we trying to grapple with? To celebrate the incarnation, we're so quick. Yes, it's to celebrate God's grace. Indeed it is. But God's grace doesn't arrive without God's judgment. Until glory, they are two sides of the same coin. We must appreciate them at the same time. Now, you might take a step back for a moment and say, well, how can Israel think these things? How can Israel say, oh, I can exist in a place apart from God? We've seen resonances within our own life. And we might say, well, how could they think that they can climb up to heaven and get what they want? And we see resonances in which we do that all the time. But what is the presumption that that underlies these responses? What is the mechanism of thinking that moves Israel in this direction? And this is where things get actually really fascinating. And God says some very startling things. So look at verse 7. Amos and God, they know that Israel is operating from a place of thinking that they're quite special. So in verse 7, Amos says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Now, who are the Cushites? Cushites are who we would call Ethiopians. The Ethiopians, at the time Amos is writing, are the people that live farthest away from Israel and are the most different. You couldn't pick out a people group in the world that was more different from Israel at this time than the Cushites. And God shows up to Israel and says, you think you're so unique and special? You're no different to me than the Cushites. You're not unique or special at all. It it would be kind of like God showing up to Rockwell Perez and saying, Rockwell Perez, you think you're unique and special? You're no more unique and special to me than the mosque in Dallas. You think 
you're unique and special, but what you've forgotten is that to actually be unique and special requires unique and special obedience. You think you can just take unique and special grace and decide that you're set, but without acting in a way that's appropriate to that being chosen, to being selected, you're really just living like the other nations, and when you choose to live like the other nations, there's no difference to you anymore. You're just like them. It's a pretty radical thing for God to say to his chosen people. It's not something that comes up, uh, it's not something that's articulated this way very often in the course of the Old Testament. What Amos is trying to point out to Israel is special status requires special obedience. If you've forsaken that special obedience, then you can no longer claim that special status. Well, Israel's not done yet because Amos now is going to anticipate their next argument. Essentially, Israel says, wait, 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 wait. Okay, we hear you saying we're no different than the Cushites, but we've got an ace of spades to play. What about Exodus? We are the people who were led out of Egypt. We are the people who were redeemed from slavery. We're the people that God chose to rescue. Okay? We'll look at 7b. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor? And the Syrians from Kir. As Israel claims, we're special because you've led us in Exodus, God says, actually, I've led lots of people in Exodus. Not only just anybody, I've led your neighboring enemies out of bondage and into freedom. Right? Did I not also lead the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir? You think Exodus makes you special? Mm Mm-mm. Nope, your neighbors have had Exodus too. And of course, because I'm sovereign, I'm the one who's executed that as well. It hasn't made you special at all. So do you see the presumption that Israel has made? God, you've chosen us. You've singled us out. You've made us special. Therefore, we're good to go. We don't need to really take stock of your judgment because we exist in your grace. And as long as your grace is flowing, yes, we may err a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, But what's the big deal? After all, you went to the length to bring us out of Egypt. And this is what God says to Israel in verse 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. What's he saying? God says, Israel, you're like a lump of dirt. And I'm going to put you in a sieve and I'm going to shake you. And if there's any good soil in it, you'll fall to the ground. And that will be the remnant. But there's going to be very little that falls to the ground because you as a nation have become so corrupted in your own selfishness and desires, in your own celebration of what you think my grace is and your presumption. There's not much that I can do with you. And so, boys and girls, just as the Christmas presents were taken away from Fred, God comes to Israel and says something drastic. I must, I must disrupt you in such a profound and drastic way so that you actually take your brokenness seriously because if you don't take your brokenness seriously, you're never going to appreciate my grace. And if you can't appreciate my grace, you can't live out of it. You can't be made new. And this is what's at the fore for Israel. The, unpa- or the revealing of this presumption that has driven them. Wow. Oh. The really beautiful part about the end of Amos is that this is a, a terribly bleak picture. Israel is facing judgment. There's not much hope. God mentions a little bit of hope for Judah. But it's a sad state of affairs. And we recognize that this is the state of affairs over and over again throughout the Old Testament with very little hope, with very little reason to look, look forward in any kind of expectation. 
but then God says, but I'm going to make sure that this is not the end of the story. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm not going to leave the end of the story up to my people because that would be a very bad final chapter. And so what does he say in verse 11? In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now pay careful attention to the first part of verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. God is saying, listen, there's a day that's coming where restoration will happen. And he, he will go on from there to say it will be a day where uh, the reaper and the sower are basically competing because there's so much harvesting going on, the sower can't stay ahead of the reaper. And the, the hills will drip with sweet wine. It's a vision of superabundance in which God's presence and blessing returns to the land and he reestablishes the booth of David. But here's the really curious part, is that first part of verse 12. And they may possess the remnant of Edom. What's the remnant of Edom? Edom becomes a name in the Old Testament that basically refers to all nations outside of Israel. And so God is saying there's a day coming when not only am I going to restore my people, but that restoration of my people will, incul- will include all the other nations. And in this little verse that is almost a throwaway verse, a verse that you would read over and not necessarily even grapple with, realize that this is the very verse that is read at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. When the apostles are gathered and saying, what do we do with these Gentiles who are coming and acknowledging that Jesus is Messiah? Should we let them in or not? James gets up and he reads Amos 9. And he says, this is the fulfillment of what God has prophesied long ago that all the nations would be his, not just Israel. As a result of the coming of the Messiah, God's family encompasses the whole world. Do you ever ask why God would exhibit such grace and patience? I mean, you can feel his, his anger and his wrath and his disappointment in Amos 9. Why not just wipe it out? Why promise that there will be another day? Why commit to going through the process of redeeming Israel and saving all the nations when it requires him to actually become human and to proceed through death? Why go through all of that? There's a story that I think helps me to appreciate what drives God in the midst of that pursuit, not only of his own glory, but as an expression of his love. Uh, It was 1973, and John McClamrock was your uh, all-American high school student, playing football, bagging groceries at the Tom Thumb, and you can look up pictures of him. He was, he was movie star good looking. So girls would go to the Tom Thumb and buy a watermelon so that he would have to carry the watermelon out to their car uh, just to spend some time with him. It was on October morning in 1973 that he suited up, he played football, and he was playing uh, defense. It was the opening kickoff, and he went in to tackle the person who was returning the ball. And the people there uh, who were present said it sounded like a tree trunk broke in half when his neck snapped. Now, this was 1973. So you had people who had to run to find a telephone. You had to wait for the ambulance to arrive. Uh, John fell to the ground. Uh, limp and did not move and coaches and the priest were trying to whisper comforting things in his ear. He was rushed to the hospital. 
And eventually his mother, Anne, was called from work to join him there, uh, in which the doctor said two things. First thing he said was, this couldn't be worse. This is the, uh, as bad as break as you can have and live. Uh, they proceeded to put two screws into his skull and hang 70 pounds to try to realign his spine, uh, which was a futile endeavor. And it was not only the nature of the break, the break had severely disrupted his circulation system so that if he tried to sit up or if they tried to sit him up, he would pass out for lack of blood flow. So he had to be absolutely prone uh, from this day in 1973 forward. And the second thing they told Anne was to, um, to, to make whatever arrangements she wanted for last rites or whatever her faith might be. Anne said, that, that's not the way the story's going to go. And she, she took him home. They went to a rehabilitation center and spent some time there. And at the rehabilitation center, they said, there is not a single muscle under John's neck that shows any sign of responsiveness. And so Anne said, okay, we're done here. And he took, she took John home. She began to pour herself into caring for John. It was an incredible, arduous task. She had to move him every several hours. Uh, she fed him. She cleaned him. She provided everything during the day that he would need, day in and day out. And frankly, Anne would even say at the beginning, she thought that this wasn't going to be a very long endeavor. And people started to say, why don't you put him in a home? Like, this is crazy. Your life is done as long as you are going to care for John. It was shortly after that that people around them, they lived in, uh, they have one of the old homes that hasn't been redone uh, in Highland Park. And, um, you know, this was, the house was built in the 50s and this was the 70s. It was before Highland Park was even being redone as the mansions were going up around them. But they started to believe that the family, some would say, was actually abandoned by God. See, Anne had already lost her first husband to liver disease. And shortly after coming home with John, her other son was diagnosed with cancer that he would struggle with for the next couple decades. And shortly after that, this is just within a few years, her second husband, who she called the love of her life, was diagnosed with acute emphysema and would die in 1977. So people looked at this house and said, "This, I don't know what you've done, but you have invited the judgment of God. It has fallen upon your house. And day in and day out, year after year, Anne took care of John. That's what her life began, became. Caring for, some, for an, uh, John who was an absolute invalid and making sure that all of his needs were met. And Anne had one prayer during all of those years, and her prayer was this, uh, Lord, please take John before you take me. Just make sure that I'm here to take care of him. Uh, in the midst of this. Now, John, John would go on to, uh, to live into the early aughts. Right? So Anne would take care of John into uh, her late 80s and um, without, without ever missing a day, without ever missing a beat. And this was the prayer that was particularly important to Anne. Jesus, I know you love me and would never leave me. I thank you for your close presence in my life. I believe in your promise of peace, blessings, and freedom from want. I place every need and care in your hands. May I always trust in your generous mercy and love. I want to honor and praise you forever. Amen. At the very end, when John knew that he was expiring, he said, uh, we know, he said to his brother, we know, we know mom's pr prayer, that I will go first. And so he says, I'm going. Why don't you have her get ready and, and come? And indeed, she came. And it was the last moments that they shared together. And John simply said, I'm sorry. I know how hard this has been for you. Right? 
a life of just caring for me. And, uh, and his mom simply said, hard. It's been an honor. You know, what, what a remarkable statement. A statement that could only be said in authenticity from a mother who deeply loves her child and would do anything to see that child have the best life possible. And I think in a, in a very poignant way, right, that expression of love is when we begin to grapple with what is really represented here in God's frustration with his people and the extents that he goes to rescue us in the incarnation, a real response would be, God, I'm sorry this has been so hard for you. We really have made it very, very difficult. And I think Christ would say in a very real sense, it's been an honor, not only for the glory of the Father, but because of the depth of love that I have for you. I would see you to this best life. I would see you to this redeemed and abundant life that you might join us again in fellowship. That's what we celebrate at the incarnation. But friends, the whole point of this morning and the point of the end of Amos is you, if you wake up tomorrow and simply say, hooray, let's have presents and Jesus is such a lovely present and we're all saved and yippity-dippity, you will miss the entirety of the incarnation. Because Advent, the coming of God, is the coming of both judgment and grace. And if your celebration does not begin tomorrow by saying, God has been born into this world, woe is me. Woe is me that the problem that I have brought into this world would require that God show up in the flesh. And at the same time then to say, blessed is me. For this is the only way that true healing comes. It's only at that point, right, when you engage the incarnation and you can say, yes, Jesus, thank you. Come and come again. But as you come, slay me that I might be made alive. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are profoundly grateful for the depth of your love and the extents that you have gone to to redeem us. We grossly underestimate the ways in which we have offended you and the ways that we have lived in rebellion and the ways that we have picked up the hammer and swung to strike the nails into your hands and feet. Would you forgive us for making the incarnation into something we want rather than what it really is? The coming of grace and judgment. Judgment because of your holiness and grace because of your love. And grace that swallows up judgment because you take it upon yourself. Would you thus feed and nourish us in your grace at this table that we might be fed and encouraged and that claiming to be special, it would not just be a claim, but our obedience would reveal to one another and to the whole world that indeed we are called out by you. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.